What do you do for a patient with chronic pain who presents with an acute pain crisis? How do you know what doses to order? And what's the difference between addiction and tolerance? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Time Out. Welcome to Medical Time Out, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chin Lin Ching. Today we'll be discussing basic approaches to treating the patient with pain and key principles of safe opioid use, which includes understanding basic equal analgesics. A really important disclaimer to say first is that this is not meant to replace um, formal opioid training that's required by New York State for DEA prescribers. As the pain specialty now with its own fellowship becomes more and more specialized, pain that is treated by palliative care is becoming more specific. Um, that niche has really become what we refer to as malignant pain um, or pain associated with cancer. So let's start at the beginning. Can you define opioids? So at its very basic, opioids are a class of analgesics. And let's use appropriate terms, okay? Opioids, not narcotics. Um, I always cringe when I hear medical prof uh, professionals use the term narcotics. Narcotic is a legal term that groups all substances that alter uh, mentation or cause sedation. Um, and so this includes drugs other than opioids. But opioids are derivatives of opium, right? And they act on pain receptors. They can be used alone or in combination with other medications to specifically treat pain. Um, and before we go any further, let's acknowledge the, the reality of the opioid epidemic. Um, and let's think about and acknowledge our responsibility as prescribers to use these medications appropriately. Yes, definitely. The CDC has very specific clinical practice guidelines for prescribing opioids, 12 to be exact. Um, and I encourage all of our listeners to familiarize themselves with those guidelines. And there are also very important um, opioid risk assessment tools that I'm hoping that prescribers can get familiar with. Um, and you should use ev every time you think about prescribing an opioid, use the opioid risk assessment tool. Um, but I think as I explain the different types of pain patients we encounter, we need to recognize that these CDC guidelines don't really apply to cancer-related pain or pain associated with end-of-life care. So tell us more about these different types of pain patients. So when I think about a patient who presents to the hospital with pain, um, I think of pain buckets in my head. And so this is when I'm going to ask Nick to show our first slide of my amazing art that I made um, with my pain buckets. Um, I have a flow chart, flow chart in my brain. It helps me think through the most appropriate approach um, to a patient with pain and whether opioids are even necessary or indicated in that situation. So the first pain bucket I think about is uh, an acute pain that's expected to improve or go away with treatment or with time. And so this is, you know, pain after a knee replacement or a surgery. As the surgery heals, um, 
pain should improve. Most often, opioids are not standard of care in this situation, right? We, we shouldn't even be thinking about opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we do, you know, one other thing to think about is, is this person opioid naive or opioid tolerant? And that's important because it will help guide starting doses. Um, the second bucket that I think about is acute on chronic pain. Um, is the acute pain associated with the chronic pain or is it not associated? So one example is someone with, let's say, chronic back pain um, from spinal stenosis and they're admitted with abdominal pain from pancreatitis. Um, Not the same cause of pain, but they're on opioids chronically for chronic pain and they're presenting with another acute pain. Um, And then another subset is acute pain that's exacerbated uh, or a progression of the chronic pain. And I think of our patients with sickle cell disease who come in with pain crises. Um, the cause of pain is from the same uh, disease process, but it's acute on chronic. The third bucket I think about is um, acute or chronic pain in the setting of um, opioid use disorder or opioid misuse or addiction. So an example I can give is someone on, let's say, Suboxone um, for opioid use disorder who is admitted for surgery and they're expected to have acute pain after the surgery. Um, And then the last bucket I think about is um, what we called malignant pain or cancer-associated pain or pain at the end of life. So someone with, let's say, metastatic lung cancer, currently receiving cancer-targeted therapy, um, but on chronic opioids because they have lots of metastases, which is causing a lot of pain, um, and they get admitted to the hospital with an acute pain crisis. Um, This is the patient population that fits most naturally within the realm of palliative care um, and most appropriate for a palliative care consult. And you'll see in my beautiful drawing that really the the bottom two buckets are the ones that are most appropriate for palliative care as this pain specialty kind of specializes and divides the other pain buckets really should go to an acute pain service or a chronic pain service or something else. So why does it matter if the pain is, is cancer related versus related to say spinal stenosis? That's a really good question. I think that most providers will agree that, um, for pain from spinal stenosis, that first line and maybe even second line therapy is not opioids. You know, these patients should be doing physical therapy. We should be trying NSAIDs. We should be doing other pain modalities before opioids. Um, But for someone who has pain from cancer, um, we know that it's important to treat their pain so they can tolerate treatment. Um, And we also know that as they're Uh, disease progresses as their cancer progresses, that their pain is going to progress and worsen too. So that opioids really becomes a part of their treatment plan in addition to chemotherapy or radiation. Um, And with that, the acute pain will eventually turn into chronic pain um, and, you know, extended release opioids make sense. And we might even need to consider opioid rotation. So how we approach that patient's pain is very different than how we approach other pain like from spinal stenosis. And I think when we're talking about people who are, um, you know, who have cancer associated pain, the pain maybe is expected to progress. We're talking about using extended release um, formulations and things like that. Um, Sometimes people, um, providers and patients alike will develop concerns about things like tolerance, um, which is which is really important to know about. 
Can we talk a little bit about the difference between tolerance and addiction? Because, you know, again, with the opioid epidemic, we are, you know, we're so aware of, of opioid use disorders and, and, and people who develop addictions, and, and we're very concerned about, about fueling things like this. Um, and what that means is that sometimes there are patients who truly need opioid medicines, who would truly benefit from safely prescribed opioid medicines, um, and we're hesitant to do so. Our patients are hesitant to take them because of their concerns about, about addiction and tolerance. Yes, very important. There is a huge difference between tolerance and addiction. Um, tolerance occurs when the dose of the opioid loses its effectiveness through time. Um, in essence, the pain receptors have gotten used to receiving a certain amount and, and kind of become immune to it. And so you need a higher dose to achieve the same level of pain control. Um, and that's a natural process of being on opioids long-term. That's called tolerance. Um, people who take um, opioids for a long period of time may develop tolerance and even uh, physical dependence. Um, and I'm going to ask Nick to show uh, our next slide, which kind of outlines the definition of the different things. Right. So dependence, so we talk about tolerance, then we talk about dependence, which is also different from addiction. Um, dependence is more of a, of a physical phenomenon. So what happens in dependence, that means that when somebody's opioid receptors are used to seeing opioids or used to seeing a certain amount of opioids, um, the, the, patient, the patient will have bodily signs of physical withdrawal when when they are on a lower dose of the opioid or when they are, you know, especially abruptly taken off the opioid because those receptors are no longer being filled um, by the presence of the opioid. Um, and this happens for most people with, um, who, who are on chronic opioid therapy, whether they struggle with addiction or not. Right. So just because you're feeling signs of withdrawal when you stop the opioid doesn't mean that you've become addicted to it, right? So addiction is a psychological and behavioral response that develops. Um, the behavior is key. Uh, how you're acting. Are you going out of your way? Are you changing your life to obtain more opioids? Um, are you stealing, you know, the, the extreme things we think about, are you stealing money? Are you going on the streets to buy more? Those are behavioral signs of addiction. You are craving um, and changing your life uh, behavior to get more. That's addiction. Um, the brain can no longer produce appropriate levels of dopamine, right? So at its very basic level, it's dopamine um, and wanting to get that dopamine rush without opioids. You need it. You want it. You go out of your way to get it. Um, this is really important to distinguish because there is... Um, a lot of people are scared. Again, let's recognize we have an opioid epidemic. Um, we talk, I'm glad we talk about it a lot in our culture, but sometimes it can that fear can be a really big barrier for people who really need mm -hmm. appropriate pain management with opioids. So again, I encourage um, prescribers to use risk assessment tools before um, prescribing opioids. These tools will help you kind of think about whether or not patients are high risk for addiction. And if they are, um, you know, taking appropriate steps to make sure that it's safe, uh, safely prescribed. If you're in an outpatient setting, um, this might be an opportunity to create sort of an office policy for prescribing opioids and making those policies and expectations clear with your patients. Um, if you want to refill, you need to come to the office, for example, and we're going to be 
for example, maybe doing uh, urine uh, screens, um, but being clear from the get-go with your patients about what the um, prescribing habit is and the expectations on, on their end are will be really uh, helpful from the very beginning. Um, safe use is of utmost importance. And, and you mentioned earlier um, that, that behavior is, is really what distinguishes something, say, like tolerance and dependence from addiction. There's also this phenomenon called pseudo addiction, um, in which there are patients who, you know, they might come to the hospital or they might be um, dealing with with their with their doctors um, in the outpatient setting, and we we say that they have this quote unquote drug seeking behavior, um, and it's not it's not that they're trying to get more of their opioid, um, you know, to, to, to get a fix or, or to get that dopamine release, it's because we're under treating their pain. Um, it's because their, their symptom needs are, are honestly not being met. Um, so it does happen in the outpatient setting. It happens a lot in the hospital. Do you have any examples of, of, of how it, it plays out in the hospital? You know, you're exactly right. Pseudo addiction looks like what some providers would label as drug-seeking behavior. I'm going to use air quotes here because it's a label. We don't like labeling our patients. Um, it looks like asking for PRN medications early. It looks like staring at the clock and taking their PRNs around the clock. It looks like calling the nurse all the time and saying, my pain isn't controlled, call the, call the doctor. Um, all of those behaviors... May, may be inappropriate, but they may be because of pseudo addiction. Um, an example is incorrect dosing, right? So, um, and, and another reason why we may be setting these patients up for failure is inappropriate time interval. Um, and I'll explain more about that. So let's say someone comes to the hospital and at home, they're used to taking something like 20 milligrams of oxycodone as their breakthrough medicine for pain. That's what they're used to. They come to the hospital with acute pain and you prescribe morphine five milligrams intravenously. Um, and we're gonna talk about equal analgesics later, but just to let you know, five milligrams of IV morphine is 15 milligrams of oral morphine, which is only 10 milligrams of oxycodone. So now you have someone who comes in from the, hot, from the community who's used to taking 20 milligrams at a time and you're prescribing 10 milligram equivalent they're going to be in pain, right? They're, they're, uh, they're, they're going to ask for more. Um, why wouldn't they complain about pain? It's because you're giving them less than what they've been used to. Right. And then how about, how about timing of doses? So I remember in residency, I was taught that all PRN opioids were ordered Q4 or Q6 hours. So every four hours or every six hours for the layman. Um, but remember pharmacokinetics, right? Short-acting oral opioids stay in the system for somewhere around two to three hours, um, even shorter for IV medications. So if you order an opioid PRN Q6 hours, there's going to be three to four hours of time where they have no opioids in their system. Again, why wouldn't they, they be asking for more pain medicine before it's due? Um, so you need to understand equal analgesic dosing and pharmacokinetics of opioids to prescribe appropriately so that we don't set our patients up for failure. Um, so pseudo addiction, again, is behavior that looks like addiction, but it's really because their pain is being undertreated for various reasons. So are there any particular tips or pearls that you have um, for hospital-based providers for when they take care of a patient who has chronic pain, but then comes to the hospital or even comes to the office um, really in a, in a pain crisis? 
This is a little bit of a no-brainer, but if someone comes in acute pain, they're going to need more than what they've been used to taking. Um, so number one is find out what they've been taking, right? So take a good pain history. How much opioids have you been taking for the past 48 to 72 hours? And expect that you're going to need to prescribe more than that. Um, if their pain receptors are used to receiving a certain amount, um, it, it can't get better with anything less. Um, I'm repeating myself, but understanding equal analgesic uh, is important. So yes, let's let's talk about about equal analgesics, um, and what that basically means is that um, you know five milligrams of morphine is not the same as five milligrams of oxycodone is not the same as five milligrams of of hydromorphone. So there are lots of of charts and conversions and things like that um, that are that are out there all over the internet, really. Um, at our institution, um, we tend to use the chart that is um, that's endorsed and, and also published by the um, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Um, it's actually published as part of um, the AAHPM's palliative care primer. So there are simple ratios in there. You know, we've been using them for years. Our colleagues have been using them for years, and we've sort of memorized them over all of that time. Um, Nick, could you uh, show the slide that has that equi-analgesics table, please? So the chart that comes with the primer um, is more complete. This is just something I kind of grabbed. The, the three most common opioids that we use in the hospital are morphine, oxycodone, and hydromorphone, or Dilaudid is the non-generic name, brand name for it. And, you know, we've used it so much, Rashmi, that we've memorized these ratios. But basically, the, the most basic ratios that you should be familiar with is, you know, IV to PO morphine is a one to three ratio. Oxycodone to oral morphine is a two to three ratio. Um, IV to PO hydromorphone or Dilaudid, is, it is one to five. And the most important ratio that I think everyone should remember is IV Dilaudid to oral morphine is one to 20. Mm -hmm. um, so again, one milligram of intravenous hydromorphone is 20 milligrams of oral uh, morphine. So the next time you want to order one milligram of IV Dilaudid to that geriatric patient who's in the ED with a compression fracture, um, ask yourself if you're ready to give them 20 milligrams of morphine. And if you remember that ratio, then I really do think that it's going to decrease um, risks of over-sedation and um, improper dosing. What are some other things that you would suggest um, as people manage the situation? Phone a friend, call a consult. Um, treating complex pain is complex um, and opioids are scary. Um, there are specialists like us who can kind of come in and um, help tease it all out. Is it appropriate to maybe start a PCA or a patient-controlled uh, analgesic pump? Mm -hmm. um, what about um, a fentanyl patch? What about methadone? Um, how do you convert intravenous uh, opioids to oral opioids when they're ready to be discharged home? Um, what about other modalities of pain management, which are becoming so much more common, ketamine, buprenorphine? Um, get comfortable with sort of the basics that we just talked about. Get comfortable with knowing where to start and then call us in when things get more complex or if you need more help. So why don't we take a few minutes to review, especially some of those more basic points. Um, Nick, could you show the slide of the take-home points? So 
First of all, um, it's it's important to be aware of what kind of pain you're treating, you know, going back to those those pain buckets that, that we talked about a little bit earlier, um, and consider whether opioids are even the appropriate first-line starting treatment, because for some of those buckets, opioids are not the place to start. There are a lot of other things that we can do before we before we get into that, that opioid realm. When we are moving towards or starting opioids, um, we do need to provide counseling to our patients on using them. And so we should be counseling people on the risks and benefits of opioids. Um, we as, as prescribers, but you know, even our patients should ideally understand a little bit about the difference between tolerance, dependence, pseudo-addiction, and addiction. Um, there are lots of myths and misconceptions out there, and if we're the ones who are prescribing these medications, it's our responsibility to be educating our patients about about the things that they might they might come across. Um, and then, before you prescribe an opioid, reach for one of those opioid um, risk assessment tools. There are tons of them out there. A lot of them are online. There's actually one that you can access even just through up to date. Um, if you're in an outpatient practice, then make sure that the practice has clear guidelines, clear policies around screening for opioid misuse or for opioid abuse, um, and also standard procedures for renewing prescriptions for patients who are, who are receiving opioids. Um, and you also have to make sure that these policies and procedures are very clearly communicated to your patients um, so that there are no surprises on either end. Right. And for patients who have chronic pain, especially malignant pain in the setting of cancer, and they come in with an acute pain crisis, think about what their home regimen is, right? So think about their chronic opioids as just their daily aspirin too. This is not the time to wean them off opioids when they're in a pain crisis. This is the time to think about what their basal rate is, what they're used to getting. And the general rule is if someone comes in with an acute pain crisis, they may need up to 30% increase in their total daily dose of opioids to overcome that acute pain crisis. And then when things are better, then you can work on maybe tapering them down and weaning the doses. But um, don't forget what their chronic use is and build on top of that. Um, Think about uh, appropriate pharmacokinetics when you're prescribing medications in the hospital, right? Um, the general rule is every three hours is needed for oral medications. Every one to two hours is needed for IV medications. Um, another really important pearl is patients who have an oral route shouldn't really need intravenous medications. Do not go down that IV opioid rabbit hole unless you really have a good reason, like they are an NPO status, they, they're ready for surgery, they can't take anything by mouth, or they have um, a, a malignant bowel obstruction or something that prevents them from taking things by mouth. Um, and lastly, equal analgesics. You don't need to memorize the table, but be familiar with some basic ratios so that um, you understand what you're prescribing. If you do need to do an opioid rotation or if they come in on orals and you need to put them on IVs, using these charts and doing the math um, is the safest way to go. Um, tables are available for use online. Um, and there are all sorts of opioid calculators that you can use as well. Um, it's just math. It's not intimidating, it's not scary, and it actually makes me feel better about knowing that I'm doing the right thing, because it's math. Um, so it's, you know, an example that I was thinking about was um, 
we were recently consulted to help a patient um, who had just come out of surgery. Um, her uncontrolled pain was really delaying her discharge from the hospital by days. And she was showing, again, I'm using air quotes, drug-seeking behavior, right? She was calling the nurse all the time, saying that her pain wasn't controlled, asking for the PRNs around the clock early, um, and the team was getting very frustrated with her. So they called us for help, which I'm glad they did, because it turns out she was taking 60 milligrams of long-acting morphine at home with some short-acting breakthrough. Um, and all they did was put her on morphine five milligrams intravenously every six hours as needed. Um, so it, it's, it's a, you know, actually it was two milligrams. And so two milligrams of intravenous morphine is about six milligrams of oral morphine, which is one tablet of Norco yeah, or uh, not Norco, uh, Vicodin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, all we did was math. We took her home regimen, we did some math, we increased her PRNs by 30% and she went home the next day with controlled pain. So, um, the moral of the story is find out what they take at home, do some math, and that's a great place to start. Yeah. So I think what that, what that story illustrates is those two things, knowing what they're taking at home, doing the math, and also calling for help. Calling for help is, is a really important thing. Um, and so uh, the last pearl that we have to share, I think, today is please reach out for help and call a consult for, for help um, with patients who have complex pain regimens not only for help with, with converting between different opioids or transitioning from oral to IV or, or in the opposite direction, but also because there are a lot of different pain modalities that are available to patients um, who have acute pain, who have chronic pain, including some interventional regimens. Um, and so even if, if there's something that could be done for the patient that's not something that we would directly do, we or a, or a pain team um, can often put people uh, in, in touch with or, or can make arrangements for somebody to receive these other interventions. And that could be really, really life-changing. And for our affiliate providers where, you know, we don't have a palliative care service in the hospital, mm -hmm. we have a lot of um, colleagues who just call us and curbside us and say, hey, can you double check my math? I'm trying to, uh, you know, put this person on this or convert from this um, and just have an extra set of eyes. It doesn't have to be a formal consult. Um, and that's okay, too. Um, we're, we're good at math. Yeah. Um, and so now here's the segment, Rashmi, where we talk about some things that drive us crazy, our pet peeves, um, something that drives you crazy about pain management or opioids. I think for me, it's not taking the time to do the math. Did you get that? <laughs> math, math, math. Um, not taking the time to do the math and just picking random doses uh, from thin air is dangerous and really risks either over-prescribing or under-prescribing. And we need to do right by these patients um, and, and be as thoughtful about opioid prescribing as we are about finding out their values. Right. And I think mine is maybe a little bit of an extension of that. It's not understanding the the equianalgesics. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my palliative care hat, but I'm also going to put my my hospice hat on at the same time, since I'm I'm also somebody who works with hospice. Um, Something we find um, so often, both in the hospital setting and at home, is people who don't understand the relative potencies of the different opioids that are out there. So morphine, for example, has this reputation as you know the the death drug. Um, you know, I've heard I've had people say to me things like, "Oh, I you know I'd never take morphine. Morphine that's the thing that they give the soldiers on the battlefield. That's you know it's 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 going to hasten my death. It's you know no, I'm never going to take that." 
And then they're perfectly happy taking oxycodone. They're perfectly happy taking hydromorphone or Dilaudid, which are actually much more potent than morphine is. Morphine is really the baby. Morphine is, is, is really the, you know, the, the gentlest one of, of these medications that we can use. Um, and I've heard you say um, in the past that you know, when you put somebody on five milligrams of morphine, that's pretty equivalent to their taking one tablet of Vicodin. It's actually less potent than taking one tablet of, of Percocet, which people prescribe and, and use very commonly. Um, and so sometimes we have to do um, a little bit of unpacking and a little bit of educating um, in order to use the drug that's the most appropriate for the patient, because the, the fact is that we always want to use something that's uh, that has kind of the least potency so that um, we can start our doses as, as low as possible and titrate slowly. That really gives us the most control over, over the analgesia that we provide the patient while still balancing any, any side effects or other adverse effects. Right. We're expecting tolerance, right? We're expecting these patients who are going to be on opioids long-term with cancer, who are going to be transitioning to end-of-life um, as they build tolerance, we're going to need to go to something stronger. And so morphine is is the baby, as you said, and so we need room to go up. Yeah, it, it cracks me up. I don't want morphine, but I'm okay with a fentanyl patch, which right. is tremendous, so much, more so much stronger than, than morphine. So, um, so that's all really helpful. Yes, I agree with everything you just said. Um, well, we hope that this was useful in your daily practice. Um, and... Going forward, we would love to hear from you. Please send us your, your questions, your comments, any um, suggestions for future topics. Um, let us know. You can send us an email by um, emailing medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. And I'm going to read this so I make sure I uh, get, get the right um, thank yous out there. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. A big thank you to Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to us and palliative care education. We would like to thank Levi Ganji for composing and uh, producing the music for this podcast. Um, we'd like to give a huge thanks to Nick Davis for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. And thanks to you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll talk about calling appropriate palliative care consultations. Have a great couple of weeks. <laughs>